Welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast that I use as an excuse to learn new things, and then whatever cool things I learn, I get to teach to you. Mm -hmm. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So this week, we get to go back to biology, which is my favorite thing. Excellent. Super excited. Um, And we're talking about eusociality. Okay. Now, I just so everyone's clear, E-U, eusociality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, just true sociality. Okay. Truly social. Excellent. It was not a thing like this. This word was, you know, made up like all good words. Or like all words. Yeah. Okay. But also made up. But this one was made up in 1966, so. So later in history than other words. more recently than some other words. Fair enough. Less recently than others. True. Yeah. Um, scientist named Suzanne Batra. And she was using it to describe nesting behaviors of certain bees. Okay. Um, and then a uh, very famous biologist, uh, E.O. Wilson, comes along and kinds of like talks about the general concept of it in relationship to other insects like ants and wasps, termites. And um, so he defined it that it had to include three features specifically. Okay. Um, a reproductive division of labor. Reproductive division of labor. Okay. With or without having sterile casts. So even sure. if some organisms are not technically sterile, they better not be having any offspring. It's, okay. you know, the reproduction is divided. Sure. Okay. Um, overlapping generations. Okay. And cooperative care of the young. Okay. All right. Yeah. So if you don't know yet what you sociality is because I have not really defined it. Right. You know, fair enough. I mean, uh, I'll that, say that fair was enough. A, that was a stab at defining it. I mean, in a very yeah. technical term. It's more, I mean, yeah, it's a textbook. Yeah. That's what it is. It was a chapter. It's a chapter of a textbook and everyone's getting real bored right about now. But so you sociality is those animals that um, all live together in a colony. They have a queen. That's going to have all the babies, basically. Mm-hmm. They're going to have generally different jobs that an organism can do. Okay. Again, that doesn't include having babies. And this concept was, um, it's a problem for biology. Okay. To, to not have babies on purpose. Right. It kind of messes with the idea of an animal's, what was the term, uh, fitness? Right. Yeah. And so... Eusociality, what it really is, is altruism to its fullest extension. For, for a number of individuals or most of the individuals within the, the colony or, or the Well, it's just an example group. of altruism. Sure. The queen is maybe the on the receiving end of the altruism, but yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, altruism, selflessness, mm-hmm. how would that ever be promoted in the natural world? Right. Right. That's that's always been kind of an issue. Um, so, like, I mean, even if the animals aren't fighting each other, most adaptations that are good for one individual will kind of indirectly harm the others. You know, if they're better at foraging, 
Sure. You know, they're better at having babies. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's easy to see why in nature, the genetics, the behaviors seem like they should trend to the selfish sure. behaviors, right? Um, so how are we explaining unselfish behavior or extremely selfless behavior in evolutionary theory? Okay. Um, so this was an issue for everyone, including Darwin himself. Okay. So in The Origin of Species, he wrote that this paradox that in particular displayed by ants, he's very frustrated about the ants, uh, was the most important challenge to his theory. Sure. These ants okay. were messing up with his, like he was, he was like very vexed, he was vexed by this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so he decided the sterile worker caste was, quote, a well-flavored vegetable, and the queen was the plant that produced it. Thus, he said, the whole colony is the unit of selection. Right. I think that that makes sense. It does. It's just, I just enjoy how eloquently a scientist has to, like. Sure. It's just funny to me. I love it. So, um, to define altruism in nature, it's when animals behave in a way that's going to reduce their individual fitness and increase the fitness of another in the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, how can this be maintained? How can these behaviors stick around? So there's a biologist named William Hamilton that proposes animals can increase their, how much of their genes are in the next generation by altruistically helping close relatives. So not just their own offspring, because that's like, we're always clear on why that would benefit them. Yeah. But like, think about how parents and offspring share 50% of their DNA. So that's why you're going to help your kid or whatever. Yeah. Okay. But brothers and sisters, well, sisters and sisters, siblings share 50% of their DNA as well. Right. So natural selection, therefore, might favor helping siblings or even helping your parents have more children. Offspring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that led to Hamilton's idea of inclusive fitness. Okay. So according to Hamilton, the three key variables in altruism, what makes this act logical or not, evolutionarily speaking, um, is the cost to the altruist. Okay. The benefit to the receiver. And then something he called the coefficient of relatedness. So how how closely related related are are the people that you're helping? uh, To you. Yeah, the... Uh, I guess I'm not necessarily there's one number that basically just the proportion of genes you have in common yeah. is what the number is. So it's going to be between zero and one. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Zero being zero, zero percent and, and one, one being a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so natural fl- selection, he said would favor altruism. If the, if RB has to be greater than C. So the coefficient of relatedness times the benefit. Okay. Has to be greater than the cost. Okay. Is the is Hamilton's rule. Okay. Right. So, um, this is called kin selection. You know? Yeah. Sounds reasonable. It, it is reasonable. Um, and as you can imagine, it would weaken with, you know, being less related and mm-hmm. um, as the cost gets higher. You know, like, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. But in the end, we don't think that's the reason anymore. <laughs> This is what I was taught in school. 
Fair enough. This was the accepted logic for a while. Not so much anymore. Okay. And I'm going to get back to it at the end, what we now think. I just thought it was interesting to start oh. with what I thought. And you're going to force us to wait till the end <laughs> to, to find I out the new theories. Okay. You got to wait till the end. Because now I just want to talk about more general animals that are eusocial. Of course. Yeah. Let's go there. Yes. So many species of hymenoptera. I don't know if you've heard of hymenoptera. I mean, I'm sure I have at this point here, but what it means, I couldn't tell you. It's just, it's got the ants, the bees, and the wasps in it. Okay. So, those things are all hymenoptera. Or it's an order of insects. Excellent. Okay. So, yeah. Many species in hymenoptera are eusocial. Like, all the ants. Pretty much. Pretty much every ant. Okay. Uh, Many bees, but not most. Not most? And some wasps. It's mostly just the honeybees. Okay. That are Is there a relation social? here to um, insects that have like a queen? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's only that's that is a concept of eusociality. Like the, right. those okay. other ones don't have. Right. Okay. If they're not eusocial and they're solitary, then Then I guess it doesn't apply anymore. Right. Okay. I understand. Yeah. So eusocial insects are gonna form colonies that have sterile workers, more or less, and one or more queens but very few um they all have that multiple generation within the colony thing that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. um there is a few arachnid species that are getting close seemingly really like that seem very social in there but they're not quite there yet kind of thing okay so who knows if that'll just is that you know, like if it's working for them they'll just keep doing it but is that like they display two of the three rules for you sociality or, or sometimes display some okay. and sometimes don't sometimes kind of thing. Yeah. okay makes sense um so among the wasps paper wasps yellow jackets and hornets are kind of the most socially organized and again in the bees it's honeybees um in these groups workers are always i'm gonna say i'm gonna say this and i'll explain it don't worry they're always diploid females and the males are haploid so, of course. Um, Maybe you that should just explain refers, that. You have two copies of every chromosome, mm-hmm. right? And that means diploid. Right. Two, the I for two. You have two copies. Yeah. Um, and so the males being haploid means they only have one set of every of every chromosome. Okay. Interesting. So we'll get into what that means. Sure. So, queens in Hymenoptera make males by using unfertilized eggs. So, there's just the one set from the female, from the queen. That's why they're haploid. That's why they're haploid. Yeah. And that's why they're male. Okay. That's how this works in Hymenoptera. Um, Fertilized eggs, the diploid ones, will be female. Now, what that means is that females are more related to each other than males are to other members of their family. So, Hmm. let's just go through the math here. Like, a mother and an offspring will always have a 50% relatedness. Well, a mother and a daughter. Okay. Uh, Two brothers are going to have 50% relatedness. That's still the same. A brother will only have 25% relatedness with a sister. Okay. And two sisters can be at 75% relatedness. 
Because the 50% that comes from the father is always going to be the same because he only has one to give. So we just know that that 50% is always going to be the same. And then the mother, you know, you have a 50-50 chance at which one you're going to get. Okay. Okay. I understand what you're saying. Does this make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So since that three-quarters relatedness is higher than the value between even a mother and an offspring at 50%, then you're going to maybe pass on more genes, so says inclusive fitness, by... Help helping your sister, not not necessarily your brother having offspring yourself, right? Yeah. Um. So we thought that we had this nailed. Is what I'm trying to say. We're like, this makes so much sense. I was going to say this seems to relate back to the original Hamilton theory that you were referring to. Yeah. So this seems like maybe it's a thing in Hymenoptera. Okay. And maybe they're the weird ones, even though they're the ones we know the most about and studied first and all that stuff. Okay. So let's like we started on. with the red herring is what you're saying. Yeah, with the with the outlier, with the one yeah. more different okay. system. But we'll go on and see what you think. So ants. Ants evolved around 100 million years ago from non-social wasps. Hmm. I thought we had ants ever since... We had mothers and then sisters and then... God. Offspring of them. Oh. <laughs> oh, you mean ants, not oh, aunts. Okay. God. You can talk about ants. That's fine. Uh-huh. Ants became common about 45 million years ago based on the fossil evidence. I have no will to love... Okay. Okay. Like I said before, pretty much all of the 10,000 species-ish, 10,000-ish species are eusocial. Okay. Um, ants are cool, though, like, really cool. I know we've talked about them before, some farming and some other cool stuff, but I like the fact that they are 2% of the insect species. Yes, yet they make up 50% of the biomass of insects in the world. Mm, So they're just large. No, they're so tiny. So how are they 2% but make up 50% of the biomass? Because there's so many of them. 2% of the insect species. 2% of insects are ants. I thought you were trying to say that 2%. And there's just so many of them. Okay. I thought you were trying to say 2% of every insect you could go see, like, never mind, members. I'm glad that you got confused so that if anyone else listening was confused, now you've asked the question. Okay, great. Um, Okay. So a new ant colony is formed, like, a winged female flies away from mm-hmm. the nest. Yes, I'm familiar with um, this. You know, right after she mates, she mm-hmm. flies away. And then her wings fall off and she makes a nest. And then she has lots of daughters, all from the sperm she stored right. um, from matings that one time she grew wings. And this can be like, yeah, years and years. So she stores a sperm and just keeps using that same sperm. Okay. Okay. Um, then the, these daughters form a worker cast who's job it is to start caring for the queen and maintain the nest and the larvae and embryos and defense and all that other stuff, right? Um, In lots of ant species, some workers actually develop into soldiers that look different and behave differently, that are like more aggressive, bigger, have different kinds of armor or weapons, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, And not only are all the workers sisters, but you know, the larvae they're caring for are sisters. They don't start producing males, generally, 
we should have less relatedness with the female, right? So yeah. they don't start producing uh, males until the colony's been, like, well-established and gets to the right size. It usually takes a few years before they start even making any males. Okay. And she's, you know, the queen starts to make the males on purpose, right? She's yeah. deliberately releasing eggs that aren't fertilize, fertilized. Um, they... Basically, just don't do anything. They have wings, and the workers just eventually chase them out of the colony. Really? Like, get out of here. Um, yeah. And then they start to raise some of the female embryos to become future queens. We don't really know how yet. They think it's, like, a food quality thing, which alters the hormone balance. Really? Yeah. Um, and then some winged females start to appear and leave the nest as well and do their whole mating thing. All over again. Um, so, as we were talking about earlier with the bees, with the mom being diploid, the dad being haploid, is that the workers, again, are going to share more genes with their sisters than they do with their mothers. Okay. So, again, it just creates a strong social bond. And, again, it kind of seems to make sense. Right. But then we talk about termites, and you'll see. Okay. It starts to... Fall apart. Cracks up here. <laughs> so, termites, I know, again, I think we talked about this in the um, animal farming, animal farmers Correct. episode. Yeah. But termites, which always surprises me, are not really that related to ants. Yeah, that was surprising the first time you told me that. <laughs> um, I don't think everyone listening has listened to all of our episodes, so I'm not going to like make them Fair miss enough. out on cool things. Okay, so we'll just tell you. Termites aren't really that related to ants. No. Okay, go. They derive from like a cockroach-like ancestor 150 to 200 million years ago. And that means that their evolution of eusociality is, you know, separate from Different. what happened in Hymenoptera. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike in Hymenoptera, termite queens can't control the sex of their offspring. Oh, So okay. the termite workers might be male or female. Okay. In either case, they're sterile and usually blind. Oh. Um, some of the more advanced termite species, but not many of them, produce like an actual worker, soldier, and reproductive cast that are like very separate. But most termites are just like the queen or maybe a few queens and then just like workers. Okay. Um, so Hymenoptera, where we have that weird genetic system... The societies are extremely gender unbalanced, right? Yes. Extremely. <laughs> um, but that's not what we see in termites. Isoptera. Isoptera, if you were wondering. So, iso, meaning two same sides are the same? I, I don't know where we came up with all the different yeah. words that... I mean, I think the only place I'm really familiar with the with the prefix iso is in triangles, in which case you have... Isobaric, isometric, physics is where I think of Yeah, okay, that's true. Yeah, where you have two sides of things that are balanced. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Okay, so back to biology. Um, termites don't have this gender unbalance. Okay. So, now we're going to learn some cool stuff about termites. Let's do that. So, they eat underground woody plant material, like roots and stuff. And this is an unusual ecological niche to try to inhabit because it's hard to eat. Yeah. <laughs> Things can't digest that. You've got to break down cellulose, which is like a polymer that plants make from glucose. Um, they're linked 
the glucose molecules with this chemical bond that animals can't really break during digestion. So cellulose is indigestible. Indigestible. Oh, that's a tough one. So what do they do? Well, they've got microbes in their gut that can digest the cellulose for them. The thing is that termites have to really actively maintain these populations of microbes. Um, so they always need to kind of be getting more and making sure they have enough. And if that's not going to happen, they're going to starve, right? Mm -hmm. So what do they do? Well, they live together, right? That was like, this couldn't have really evolved another way because termites will vomit and poop for each other so that they can, you can eat that dose of microbes from another termite and just kind of like pass it around, which leads termites to being extremely dependent on each other and living in large colonies. Sure. They've reached a point of no return, which is another theory in eusociality circles. Um, Basically, Hamilton would say, though, look, but that increases that benefit value and the cost is so low. So this still makes sense. They don't have to be 75% related. They're just normal related. Anyways, I'm still, we're not completely blowing the theory out of the water, but um, they're, they're both diploid, the right. male and females, right? Yeah. So the haplo, haploid and diploid thing that was happening in Hymenoptera um, isn't necessary. Right. So that's kind of where this theory starts to, it's it a little more shaky. Um, so termites, one other thing I thought that was cool, they have kings as well as queens. Oh. Because of this gender balance society here. Um, sisters are just as related to brothers as they are to their other sisters. Right. So there's not that loyalty to sisters thing going on. Yeah. Um, so another thing I thought was cool is because they call the workers um, in a lot of termite species suitor gates. Mm. Like pseudo, like false. Suitor gates. Okay. False workers. Um, they don't develop all the way. Like they kind of like kind of stay in a more juvenile or smaller state. Um, and they can at some point escape their colony and grow into normal size and grow wings and fly away. And they can found their own colony. But before that, they are kind of arrested. Anyways, termites are also one of those where you get like a soldier looking morph, I guess you could say, where they have really heavy mandibles, really big head, you know, and they're, they've also got chemical defenses, which just makes them really effective at defending the nest compared to the normal workers, I guess. Right. Um, but another insect we've talked about before on the animal farming episode as well, I believe, um, is ambrosia beetles. Yes, right. So there's one species of ambrosia beetle, um, Ostroplatypus incompertus. Oh. That is eusocial. And it's one of the, you know, few things outside of Hymenoptera and Isoptera that are truly eusocial. Okay. So, um, again, if you didn't listen to that podcast or you just don't remember, ambrosia beetles are a type of weevil. Yes. Weevils being long-nosed beetles, basically. <laughs> yes. 
They're like cool, Google them. Anyways, so this one lives in Australia, uh, New South Wales and Victoria specifically. And they live in trees. So ambrosia beetles are boring beetles. As in the, Very boring. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I was trying to get it ahead of you and, and clarify that they well, bore into Well, you should just wood. dig in and tell us what. <laughs> so they live in eucalyptus trees, shockingly enough. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so they farm fungus inside their tree burrows. Right. And what happens is a fertilized female starts a new colony by digging deep into a tree making some branches and depositing some fungal spores and some larvae. Then the larvae grow up and the the males leave first with an average of about five females staying behind females. The rest of females leave after. And those females that stay behind will actually lose the last four called tarsal segments on their hind legs, kind of like different joints. Okay. Um, And they would need those to carry like eggs oh okay and fly away and do all these things so basically right now they have physically been changed to be sterile working class right um then the entrance to that colony is gonna close because the tree will eventually heal it right um and so that means that those workers are going to just be workers forever, basically. And they do the cooperative brood care. They keep the tunnels clear. They do all the things that other worker classes would do. Um, so the studies have also found that these beetles are diploid, male and female. There is no different okay. sex-determining thing. Um, so probably extra relatedness didn't doesn't matter in this case. Um... So, I find it interesting. <laughs> they do say that sex ratios are even, although males really have no value and only survive as stored sperm. <laughs> it's like, oh, nice. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, so, the next insects, aphids and thrips. I don't think I've heard of thrips before. I sure hadn't. Heard of them either. Okay. So I Googled it just, you know. Makes sense. They're like tiny and they're about as wide as a slightly larger than normal sewing needle. Like they're very tiny. They eat plants. Basically, they occupy the same ecological niche as an aphid, aphid, which is why they're grouped together in this case. Okay. Are they actually like closely related? They are not closely related, which is the next bullet point I had right here. Great. You should explain that. Aphids and thrips are not closely related. Okay. They are in separate orders (laughs) in an ancient insect super order called Paraneoptera. Um, But they just share a lot of social traits due to convergent evolution, right? They occupy the same niche, so they've randomly landed on the same solution because it's bound to happen every once in a while. Sure. Yeah. So, unlike in ants, it's really rare for aphids and thrips to be eusocial. Only 1% of aphid species and less than 1% of thrips are eusocial. Um, But these guys do have a high degree of relatedness. We're back to this again. Okay. Um, Because, uh, specifically, aphids have a they reproduce a lot with parthenogenesis 
Oh. Where the female basically just clones herself. Right. Um, she can do asexual, kind of switching between asexual and sexual uh, yeah. reproduction. There is a number of species that do that. Uh, I thought that was one of the things that we had talked about, that it was more common than uh, originally thought of historically. More common than originally thought of. Yeah, I just so I lot. wouldn't say parthenogenesis <laughs> itself is common. And okay. so when you say it's common, then they can switch back and forth. I'm like, well, we're talking relative, relatively here. Okay. Like, I don't know. But you're, you're right. Among the parthenogenic species, there are quite a few that can do both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but one thing we're going to mention here is that eusocial aphids and thrips all have a specific thing in common, which is that they live in a gall. And a gall is like a swelled up growth that the insects can cause a plant to, to make, to grow. Right. Like a tumor. Mm-hmm. It's like a tumor. And so then the insects can live inside of it and they can like, it gives them food because they eat yeah. the kind of weird plant matter that the plant kind of grows inside that gall. Yeah. They live within their their food basically. Yeah. So galls kind of give them a defensible resource that makes them different than other species of aphids and thrips. Okay. And this is something to think about later. You know, they do have soldier castes that defend their fortresses and protect their colony. They have different, like, again, they look different and behave differently, the soldier castes. So having this fortress to defend, that's going to come up later. Okay. At the end. Um, So there's also a snapping shrimp. Oh. Synalpheus regalis. It lives in sponges and coral reefs um, in the tropical West Atlantic ocean. Cool. Um, yeah. So these guys, it's pretty cool. They live like one colony will be all inside like one sponge and they just live in there. They just stay in there. Like that's sure. their food. That's like ask if they everything. eat that sponge. So okay. no, they don't eat the sponge. They eat the same way the sponge does, which is just by pumping water through itself. Okay. And filtering out stuff. So the sponge becomes a they castle, just, basically. They just take the, its food, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess you could call it a parasite, but it might not even notice them. Yeah. So this is the first case of eusociality known in a marine animal. I was going to say, it's the first one that we've gone through that's underwater. Yeah, yeah I've ever cool. heard of. Um, so yeah, these guys live in colonies that can be over 300 shrimps large, but there's only one breeding female. Okay. Um, so... Clearly, they meet the reproductive division of labor criteria. Yeah. Um, they do have generational overlap. Uh, and, yeah, they have cooperative feeding and they defend the young, all that stuff with the different casts. So, yeah. So, they qualify. They qualify. They Good even have some, like, it seems like the larger colony members are the ones that are defending the colony from intruders. We don't really know a whole lot about them yet and their okay. eusociality, I hope. Do more studies. Yeah, fair enough. Alright, now on last but not least mm. to the coolest example, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Coolest. Yeah. Is the mole rats. Ah, uh, yes. Actually, yes. Very cool. Some mole rats. Only a few mole rats. Anyways, apparently they're also called blesmoles. Oh. That's, That's kind of a name. fun name. Yeah. So they're a line of burrowing rodents, family Bathyricidae. Bathyricidae? Yeah. I don't know why you'd want to know that. But they live in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, they live underground. 
So, you know, they're kind of like a long tube with teeth. Very, 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 mm. very big teeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And kind of almost blind. And the only two eusocial mammals and the only two eusocial vertebrates, in fact, that we know about are in the mole rat family. Okay. The naked mole rat and the Demaraland mole rat. So the other mole rats all live like solitary lives. Okay. These are the ones that do any type of group living. Um, and their colonies are kind of like termite colonies. There's an equality between the sexes. All the offspring are diploid. They're all equally related. Oh, and I forgot to mention the shrimps. Uh-oh. Shrimps are also diploid. Okay. 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 Um, like termites, they have gut microbes that they're dependent on for their digestion, and they're dependent on each other for reinfection, shall we say. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, they have a king and queen that make all the offspring. Sometimes a few kings, but... Sure. Yeah. Um, so these guys are also a good example of convergent or parallel evolution. They have tended towards all, a lot of the same solutions to their yeah. environmental conditions. Um, so again, just going to point out that the similarity of all these things, the morats and the termites and the beetles and the shrimp are all diploid. And we're thinking that this is a kind of gradual social ecological thing, maybe not a genetic thing so much. But I gotta talk about you know, naked mole rats some more because they're too cool. Okay. And then we'll get finally back to teaser. <laughs> sure. Ooh, the suspense is killing you, I'm sure. Yeah. The I'm cliffhanger sure. at the beginning. Yeah. So naked mole rats, um, heterocephalus glaber, if you care about the <laughs> scientific name here, they're also called sand puppies. Oh, that doesn't conjure the same um, image in my mind at all. I mean, I try to find all animals beautiful. Sure. But. Sand puppies sound far so more. So much cuter yeah. than a naked mole rat. Uh-huh. They are not good looking animals. So, so much. why don't you learn about instead how amazing they are and you could forget how ugly they are. Okay. Yeah. Deal. Okay. So they have just giant teeth. Their lips are sealed just behind their teeth, which obviously, you know, so they don't get dirt in their mouth. Mm -hmm. A quarter of their muscles are just for keeping their jaw closed. Yikes. While they dig. Or their lips closed while they dig. Yeah. Um, I know they're called naked mole rats, but they do have a little bit of hair. They have a hundred little hairs all over their body that kind of help them sense things. I was going to say, is this like whiskers kind of? Yeah, it is. And they also have hair between their toes to help like kick the soil backwards while they're tunneling. Okay. Um, They do not regulate their body temperature like other mammals do. Yeah, that's pretty unique as well. They're called thermoconformers. Instead of thermoregulating, they thermoconform. Okay, fun. So they actually lack an insulation layer in their skin that other mammals have. Okay. So I get I don't know which came first, if they lost the layer of insulation and then started being all weird, or right, <laughs> who knows? But um, the thing is that they're not cold blooded. People are like, oh, they're cold blooded because they let their body temperature be whatever the outside temperature is. That's not quite accurate, though. Um, it's tough to say. So. Poikiotherms is what science calls cold-blooded things, basically. Right. Um, it's just animals that let their temperature fluctuate with their environment. Okay. They don't 
exactly follow that pattern um, because they use it until it's 29 degrees Celsius or higher in the environment. And then they switch to homeothermic regulation, which is to keep your body temperature the same at a steady temperature. Oh. So they're kind of like almost like a hybrid model. They sure are. Okay, cool. Yeah, they're nifty. Um, you know, when it's colder, they'll, you know, huddle together, go to different burrows. Some burrows sure. are warmer. They made some warmer and some cooler to, you know, it's Africa. Sometimes yeah. they need to even cool down. Um, but the other thing, well, one of the other things you got to really worry about when you live underground is how much oxygen you get. That is worrisome. Yes. Right. So the naked wall rat has a lot of adaptations for this. It is underdeveloped lungs. They have a special hemoglobin that has a higher affinity for oxygen. Cool. So it increases their oxygen, um, well, their efficiency of of uptake. Um, They have very low respiration rate and very low metabolic rates for their size. So they have about 70% the metabolic rate of a mouse. And I always picture them being bigger than they actually are. They're not that much bigger than a mouse, to be fair. Really? They're not that much longer than your average mouse. They're only like oh. three to four inches long. I keep thinking of them as the size of a mole or a rat. <laughs> exactly. Well, about three to four inches long, but they're like one and a half ounces, which is two to three times the weight of your average mouse. So they are okay. a little, they're a little, a little heavier and yet only 70% of their metabolic and respiration rate. Um, and they can also like adjust for it. So when they're hung, like ha- aren't eating and aren't intaking any energy, it reduces its metabolic rate up to twenty five percent more, just to save energy. Okay. Um, but yeah, the oxygen thing. So they have been shown they can survive at least five hours in five percent oxygen conditions, and that's just because the scientists were like, um, I think we should just stop. They do. They don't seem any different at all. Like it. All the. A first had a council of the scientists were like, I don't think it noticed when we dropped the oxygen from 25%. It's, it just did the same things. It was the exact same. Nothing changed the whole time. And they went five hours and they're like, okay, I don't think yeah. we've noticed. Experiment over. Okay. Cool. So maybe, so it's not like we know they can only go five hours or right. 5%. It's just we like no idea. the I mean, only depth we've like gone that. to that type of well, experimenting is that. Yeah. Okay. Apparently in the underground tunnels, it can regularly hit between eight to 10% oxygen levels. Okay. So yeah. Um, then they tried to do zero oxygen. Ooh. Um, they can survive 18 minutes. Okay. Without suffering any apparent harm, <laughs> but none of them survived the 30 minute test. So. Okay, so they, they just killed those ones. Fine, uh, I guess so. Doesn't seem great. No. So when they're anoxic, you know, they have no oxygen, they lose consciousness, and their heart rate drops from about 200 to 50 sure. beats per minute. Um, and they pretty much stop breathing. Every once in a while, they take a little breath kind of thing. Um, so that's what happened that whole 18 minutes, and they turned the oxygen back on, and they just were fine afterwards, wow. as far as they could tell. So... What's happening, a lot of what's happening, they finally figured out, which is that when they're deprived of oxygen, they'll switch their internal energy source from using glucose to derive their energy to fructose. Wow. Um, all mammals use glucose, basically. 
to do this all the time to make our ATP and all that stuff. Um, so this kind of rewiring of their metabolism avoids the lethal effects of oxygen deprivation. So doctors and researchers are thinking we should figure this out to minimize hypoxic damage to human tissue. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a cool jumping off point for further research. Um, another thing is that naked mole rats don't have neurotransmitters in their skin the same way most other mammals do. They don't feel any pain when they're exposed to acid or capsaicin. It's like pepper, heat, spice. Um, So what scientists did is they injected them with what's called substance P, which is the type, like a type of neurotransmitter. And then the pain signaling goes back to normal, I should say, goes to how it is in other mammals. That's because that doesn't sound like it's normal for them. Yeah. Yeah, yes. But that only works with capsaicin and not with acids. Okay. So still acids aren't causing pain. I guess what I'm taking from this is they'd be really good at like hot wing challenges. <laughs> Unless you object- inject them with substance P. Well, we wouldn't do that. I mean, that just sounds like you're working against yourself at that point. Right. So the substance P deficiency has also been tied to the fact that they don't have the histamine-induced itching and scratching behavior that most rodents have, which I didn't know was a thing, but... As in itching, scratching for themselves, like that like, they do to themselves. Yeah, like histamine's okay. causing you to be itchy. Um, so what's up with that is the question. Yeah. What's up with that? So what we think is that animals that live in high carbon dioxide environments need to have a resistance to acids. Sure. Okay. Because, so underground is poorly ventilated. It is. Yes. Another definition. experiment showed that naked mole rats can live just fine in an atmosphere that's 80% carbon dioxide and 20% oxygen. Okay. You're probably thinking that's normal, but you're thinking 80% nitrogen, 20% yeah. <laughs> oxygen. Right. That's normal. So carbon dioxide um, usually can be real bad. Because yeah. what happens when carbon dioxide enters your body is that it combines with water, mm-hmm. which forms carbonic acid. Sure does. So when you have an excess of carbon dioxide around, you get real acidic. True. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, that's it's very cool. And that could be the adaptation to the fact that they're going to get acidic and they just don't want to be bothered by it. Yeah. Slash, it would be really painful. Um. Naked morats also have a high resistance to tumors. That, okay. I mean, they've been said to be immune to cancer, but there's been two documented cases ever in captivity. Hmm. Never in the wild, but... Okay, we so think they, having, they found a way. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, they think having so, so much oxygen in captivity okay. ruined it. Could be. Yeah. Um, so, again, how do they do this? Well... They think maybe that they have this overcrowding gene. So basically all, well, most mammals do have an overcrowding gene, which is contact inhibition gene. Like when the cells touch each other, it stops them from continuing to reproduce themselves. Okay. Just like there's enough cells here. Stop. Stop. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So most mammals um, have this one they just call it P27, okay? 
So naked mole rats have P27 as well. But they also have one called P16. Hmm. So we're thinking this combination of P16 and P27 is like this double protection for out-of-control cell reproduction. And having that safety net means that they just don't really get cancer. Okay. Which, again, is... Super cool. It is cool, yeah. Um, also, their ribosomes produce extremely error-free proteins, so they hardly ever have any sort of deleterious mutations or anything like that. Um, or just, like, proteins that get folded wrong and mess you up. Yeah. yeah. They're okay. really good at that. It also lives a crazy long time. So, like I said, it's not that much bigger than a mouse. And a mouse lives three years. Oh, yeah. Right. And they can mole rat lives 30 Years, 32 years being the, the record. Holy cow, that is a long time for a it's the small... longest living rodent. Yeah. Even Holy though it's cow. tiny, yeah. And full of acid. Full of acid. Their mortality rate doesn't increase with age. Does not increase with age. No. Until you get to 32. Well, it's just, you're going to die of a predator eating you eventually. They don't just like, but they don't oh. get old. old. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, is that, like, they theoretically could go longer if protected? So, what they think is that, yes, because they can kind of substantially reduce their metabolism when things go wrong, as we've seen. Right. So, if they keep lowering their metabolism, maybe they're preventing oxidative stress. Sure. And that's preventing aging. Okay. That's kind of what they think. Huh. So, um, yeah, because they didn't sequence their genome fully until 2011. And when they did, they found there's genes related to the mitochondria. So that would explain some of the fructose-glucose switching behavior. Um, And oxidation reduction. Those genes are expressed more than they are in other rodents. Sure. They also did a study comparing their DNA, um, like their DNA repair sequences in their genes to humans and mice. And it's much closer to our expression of genes than, than a mouse's expression of genes. Um, as far as how well they can repair their own DNA. Yeah. Yeah. So they're super cool. And they're also eusocial. As I said, they live, the naked mole rats live in 20 to 300 member Large colonies. Yeah. Um, they've got the queen. They've got one to three kings. Okay. And then they've got non-reproductive females and males who, you know, do the foraging and the care and all that other stuff. And do they have castes of those or is that all just a worker caste? Um, good question. There doesn't seem to be much difference in the workers. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, but the non-reproducing females all seem to be re- reproductively suppressed by the queen through like pheromones. They think or something it's like that. yeah. They think it's like a hormonal thing from pheromones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so their ovaries don't fully mature, and they don't have the same levels of certain hormones as the queen does. Okay. Um, in males, there doesn't seem to be that difference in hormone concentration. Really? Yeah. It's interesting between the reproducing and non-reproducing ones. Yeah. So, yeah. Queens. Don't live as long. They live from 13 to 18 years. Still it's hard work long. having. It's yeah. hard work having babies. I mean, they're very aggressive and very hostile to other females. Like even within their own family? 
Um, they just, they take a lot of them as, like, a threat to trying to act like a queen. So if they're being sure. submissive enough, they're fine. But they're very easy to, to anger. anger. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, when the queen dies, then the females violently fight over who will be the next queen. Okay. And whomever it is, their body changes. Sure. You know, the ovaries start working. The, it, the back will, like, extend like the spaces between the vertebrae extend and her rear grows longer so that she has room to be pregnant now. Like a transformer. I don't think the difference is that crazy, but <laughs> okay. you know, I don't, I don't know if we've ever caught it on camera. So, um, so she's going to have three to 12 pups, 11 on average, up to 28 though. That's the record. Holy cow. Yeah. And gestation's about 70 days. And in the wild, she's only going to do this maybe once a year if the litter survives. If, if not, she'll probably do it again. But okay. in captivity, what we've found is they will just keep going, like, every 80 days. That can have, like, four litters really? a year, like, 12 pups. Like, it's just, just because like, they're well-nourished and, like, taken care of, I guess? Their only job is to do this. Yeah, That's it. okay. They're a breeder. Yeah. The queen's going to nurse the little pups for a month. And then pass them off to the colony members to take care of. Um, and inbreeding can be an issue. Sure. But there's been studies that did prove that the like more related that they were, the more inbreeding, the worse the colony did. Okay. So what they do have um, is a disperser role, which is different looking. This is a, definitely a separate, okay. definitely a separate cast. So. Um, they try to escape, basically. They, they do look different, but they, like, try actually to escape when no one's looking, run away from their colony. Um, they have, like, a lot more fat than any other. Make it viable for travel. Exactly. Um, they have no interest in mating with, you know, their own colony's queen. They'll only want to mate with other queens. Um, and they don't try to work together with the colony members in their natal burrow they probably don't care when they escape they're like good you're not you're not helping anyways get out of here um so that's cool anyways let's get back to this what do we think nowadays about eusociality okay um so as i said we initially used hamilton's rule of inclusive fitness also called the haplodiploid hypothesis right because of that whole fertilized egg unfertilized egg business um but we've seen that more of the colonies that do this are the diplo-diploid model, you know? They're both diploid, males and females. So um, in the 1960s and 70s, we didn't know this yet. We didn't have a problem with this. Everything we knew to be eusocial was hymenoptera. Right. Um, thus, all of our the evidence seemed to support... Our theory. ...relatedness. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't until the 90s that the haplodiploid hypothesis began to fail. I don't know why you even bothered listening to me talking about it in the first place. <laughs> you okay. Should, you I should, should have just should closed have my ears. <laughs> yeah, fine. <laughs> should have noticed it sounded wrong. <laughs> just kidding. Who knows if it's wrong. But anyways, termites never fit this model. And then they started to discover the beetles, the shrimp, the mole rats. And they were like, um, uh-oh. This no longer uh, really seems so good. Yeah. So another like strike against us is that inclusive fitness hypothesis is is doesn't explain why it's rare to see sociality in evolution at all. There's a lot of 
haplo-diploid insects, at least. That are not eusocial. That are not eusocial. I mean, like, do you remember how many aphids I was saying? Only 1% of them? Yeah. Or less than 1% of the thrips? I mean, among the 70,000 species of parasitoid insects in Hymenoptera, um, no eusocial species have been found, even though they're all haplodiploid. Okay. Uh, there's not been any examples of, I mean, it just goes on and on about there's 4,000 sawflies and none of them are eusocial. There's seven, however many thousand. So it doesn't really, seems like we would have seen it more in the haplodiploid insects. If if it was the driving force. Yeah. And then, you know, they did some fancy studies and they realized that the association between haplodiploidy, that condition, and eusociality is not statistically significant. Okay. Um, so it's just, it's just, we don't have any evidence to say that it, it is related at all. So we think maybe it's neither necessary nor enough for the emergence of eusociality. Um, and, but the relatedness is there and we know that. So it's bound to happen. Is what we think now. Like right. in most cases of eusociality, the colony is going to be begun by a single inseminated queen. Okay. Right? Maybe there will be pairs eventually. But you're going to have a female that's growing the colony over and over with the same genetic material. Maybe the relatedness just happened to be there. You know what I mean? Sure. Not the other way around. It didn't cause anything. Yeah. It's just because we all have a great place to live. I'm going to keep having lots of babies. So, of course, we're going to be here related. But that doesn't actually... Maybe it's, it's like a red herring, almost. Yeah. So, what many think now is that um, relatedness is better explained as a consequence of eusociality, not the cause of it. Yeah. That makes sense. And that what's more important are the environmental factors. And in this case... Like, food and predators. Okay. So, group living is going to be the environment that we're specifically talking about. And then we've taken that group living to an extreme. Right? Because all these eusocial species live in this communal nest. Yeah, very close contact. It gives them shelter. It gives them food for most of these species. Outside the nest is a kind of a barren, like in the ocean. Mm-hmm. If you're a teeny tiny shrimp, how far is it to the next habitable place? Like it might as well Food be a desert, desert like a yeah. mole rat is experiencing. Right. Or a tree you can't get out of. <laughs> yeah. Or the gall. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're um, creating these plentiful resources and then there's nothing else outside of it. Yeah. Um, and it's the same in all these eusocial animals. So that could have been a coincidence, but people went into it thinking this can't be a coincidence. Let's investigate this. Sure. Right. So, um, defense of the fortress. Fortress defense theory is kind of the, I'll say, leading theory these days. Um, one cool piece of evidence in favor of the fact that, you know, it's an environmental, maybe, consequence is that they've had these multiple experiments where they've put normally solitary bees together experimentally see what happens and the, in the all the experiments they start to behave like you social bees and start dividing up the labor and just go on about their business oh yeah okay 
Yeah, they think there's like kind of, you know, maybe some predetermined factors um, like about the chores. Like each bee has a certain threshold for doing these chores and then whatever has a higher threshold will do it first and then the other one will see it doing that so it'll just start doing something else it knows to do. Sure. Like there doesn't have to be any communication. They just start working together without really planning it or thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. And there are other, like, more minor hypotheses. Like, I kind of said the point of no return. So there's also another theory that says, okay, well, it's clearly a combination of kin selection and multi-level selection and group selection and point of no return and fortress defense. All of those things. Like, they're all factors. They're all factors. And we had to have a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. And um, I didn't... that, That paper was real long. Sure. So I... Didn't get all the way it. No, I did, but it was really complicated, too. Like, oh, okay. I wasn't going to go back to the beginning and then try to start summarizing it. So what I'm trying to say is that it's not simple. It's not settled. Right. Like most of evolutionary science will probably never be settled. Right. But the recent upheaval leaves this a little more up in the air than most things. Okay. And uh, I don't know. Hopefully more genetics testing, more experiments. We could... Uh, Start to narrow it down in the future. Of course. Yeah, I thought that was really cool, though. It was really cool. Yeah. So that's that's all we have for this episode. I do want to remind everyone that we have an email address, which is teach me something for the numeral four, not the word, at gmail.com. Teach me something for at gmail.com. And I would love to hear any episode ideas or corrections about anything i've said wrong because i'm sure there's lots or any any comments just say hi or compliments even those are fine too i that'd be nice (laughs) so once again everybody thank you for listening to this episode of teach me something i'm melissa and i'm everett and i hope you learned something new